and welcome to The Graduates, a radio show dedicated to graduate student research here at Berkeley. My name is Stephanie Gerson. I'm a graduate student myself, and I'll be your hostess for the show here on KALX Berkeley. So today I'm talking to Matt Earp, a master's student at the School of Information. Welcome, Matt. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And we're going to be talking about his work on online networks of musicians and fans and the effect of technology on the social listening experience. Among many other things. Among many other things, yeah. So, Matt, I know that besides being a grad student, you are also a journalist for Accelerator Magazine, a blogger, an event promoter, and um, you also DJ as Kid Chameleon. But just to start off, can you give us a brief introduction of your work? Um, Sure. My interest here at Berkeley has to do with the way that technology has influenced the spread of music and the way that people listen to it and consume it and enjoy it together or separately and and sometimes how technology maybe hasn't changed that as much as some people uh, think it might have. Um, so let's start with how... Music reaches fans and musicians. Can you talk a little bit about how that's changed with technology? Um, <clears throat> sure. Well, um, I, I guess if you want to talk about music and technology in this decade and the biggest change, you have to look at the MP3 more than more than anything, uh, and and that is isn't a technology of this decade. It's definitely was um, started to come about in the 90s and in the 90s was when we started to see file sharing music file sharing and napster and stuff like that but really this decade is when it's come into its own as a way for musicians to legitimately get their music out to fans Uh, we've seen the rise of itunes we've seen uh, mp3 players really sort of take off and just sort of that compacting of music down to the point where it can be sent in an email that's a really big change uh, from the 90s where you might have had some college students and some other people with access to technology burning CDs, uh, and certainly the 80s where you had mixtapes and, and even going hmm. further back. Hmm. Um, all right, so let's zoom in on the technologies that fans and musicians use uh, to find music that they like, that allow you to enter a song or a band that you like, and then it'll recommend something else that's similar. So I'm wondering, what what kinds of criteria do they use in order to determine that a song is similar to another one? Um, well, two of the biggest ones on the web we have right now are uh, Pandora and Last.fm. Uh, they're definitely not the only two, but those are ones that have really made it their space to be a a listening experience that is somewhat social and yet somewhat tailored personally to you. Um, and there's a certain degree of randomness. And, and so very briefly on a high level, Pandora um, is really only available here in the U.S. for certain legal reasons, but uh, has made it its model to try and tease out something like 240 musical characteristics. Things like how bassy versus how trebly or how you know melismatic versus you know straight vocal syllables and then it has a team of experts go through and listen to all the music in its system and categorize it 
along those lines, and then uses a bunch of algorithms, or as I, I kind of think of it as black magic sometimes, but um, <laughs> uses a, a bunch of calculations to figure out what, when you say, oh, okay, I want to hear, um, I'm going to give it a starting point, Radiohead's 2 plus 2 is 5, and you know, let me listen to that song, and you do, and then the system does a whole bunch of number crunching and says, okay, well, based on everything that we, the system, Pandora, knows about that song, we think that you might like this particular Nick Drake song next. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's all sorts of stuff in there about, you know, you can sort of give it a thumbs up or thumbs down. Um, but that's that's the basic idea, sort of music categorized along music, what they call musical DNA. Mm -hmm. uh, and... and and it creates a, a sort of radio station-like experience. Um, so that's Pandora. The other one that I mentioned, Last FM, uh, that bases almost all of its calculation, with some exceptions, on what your friends listen to. And so in this case, friends is kind of the same way that you might think of friends in a social network scene um, or on a social network site like Facebook or MySpace or Friendster or um, any of these things, and everybody has a profile on Last FM, and they Last FM keeps track of what they listen to, and it tries mm -hmm. to use that as a sort of indication of what people might like. So, oh, okay, you put in this song. Well, all your friends, or you know, everybody in the system who listened to that song, they listen also to these songs. So, we're, you know, we're going to do some calculations and hmm. randomly. So it's it's funny. It's like neither one is saying that they've got a perfect system and right. I, I think that would be crazy to, to to do that but everybody's sort of trying to go about this way of like how can we tease out what's ineffable about music and the social music listening experience and then yeah. at the end of the day put it into a program that actually gives you another song i really appreciate what those services are trying to do um and it's it's really fun um to kind of get into that space me personally i still don't think that they've come anywhere close to equaling um, what a, what a DJ can do and, uh, or what the recommendation of a friend can do, or now to some degree, what a music blog or any source of information about music in general on the internet can do. Are you familiar with the visual thesaurus? No, I'm not. Okay. So this is a, it's a thesaurus online where you enter a word and when you use a, when you use a normal thesaurus, right, like a book, you look up the word and then you have a list of the synonyms, mm -hmm. right? But with this, you you choose a word and it's floating in space and then you click on the word and all of a sudden it's being orbited by all of its synonyms and they're closer or farther away mm -hmm. depending on how close or far away in, in they are in meaning. And then you click on one of those words and then it creates another orbit. So you're kind of creating this web of, of interrelated meanings, which seems like it's what the musical genome project is trying to do, although obviously using different criteria. So, but do you think it would be possible to visualize something like this? Um, absolutely. There's um, there's actually some exciting work going on around that, and I'm I'm blanking on the guy's name. There's a researcher at Sun who is doing a project called See Inside the Music that is exactly that, except that I think with their visualization, they use album covers. Uh, huh. Um, but just in general, that's actually a really fertile space 
um, not just for music. I mean, in my field, the School of Information, it's usually called information visualization. Um, mm-hmm. And so all, all of these things are just sort of this, this new frontier that we have about how to think about large bodies of information. Right. Because if you were to do something like that, then you could, you could combine a whole bunch of different criteria, and then you could just turn one on or off. You could just say, uh, what my friends like and what's similar to this song. Totally. Go and navigate the... Totally. But at a certain point, I, I should come back and say, like, right. <laughs> that it's really hard. Go find a blogger. Yeah. Go, well, <laughs> go, or go find a DJ. <laughs> go find a DJ. Okay. So for those of you who are just joining us, you're listening to The Graduates on Calyx. Today I'm talking to Matt Earp of the iSchool about his work on online networks of musicians and fans and the effect of technology on the social listening experience. So um, you you already talked a little bit about this, but I was also gonna, yeah, talk about social networking tools and um, how that, how people, how fans and musicians use that to find new music that they like. Sure, there is something really unique about um, what I call visually articulating your social network, mm-hmm. um, and so that could be anything from you know a really well kept address book with people's pictures in it that is just for your use to public statement of who you know um and that could be something like facebook or or um orcut or bebo or any of these things or twitter and so it's really kind of interesting when you start to mash up just who you know with what your friends are listening to Mm -hmm. and there's some there's some cool people that are doing some plugins for MySpace and and Facebook and and everybody's kind of in this space and it, we're sort of overloaded with this information and and I actually think that that's really good if you're really sort of exploring like you're like oh what is you know I'm I'm really into finding out about this band or new music or so there's that level of kind of what every what everybody's doing and and or you know what Americans think about music or file sharing or stuff like that and what I'm more interested in um, is networks of musicians, how musicians kind of find each other and find out about each other. Um, and, and this kind of connects more to my music journalism and my work as a DJ, where I see, oh, you know, I'm into my friend Rusty's stuff. Rusty is a producer in Glasgow. Uh, and and I, I'm like, oh, who's, you know, I haven't checked in on him in a while. I wonder who he's working with and I go to his MySpace page and I see, oh, you know, very quickly I see, oh, he's, you know, done these recordings with, you know, this hip hop group in San Francisco, um, and which he actually has. It's called 215, uh, The Freshest Kids. Uh, and I'm, I'm looking to check them out, but I want to shout them out if they're out there. But, um, and then maybe Rusty's working with, you know, someone in Australia or someone in Germany. So it's really cool for me to be able to go onto something like MySpace where almost everybody is on who is a producer and see, oh, okay, I see that you know this is happening or that's happening, and then other like useful information, who's playing where, etc. And what does that do? Um, it lets me. It, it well, one, it lets me find out what is new, what's what's coming. Two, it lets me know what other people think their musical connections are, uh, and so I can say, wow, you know, I see that. Someone's put, you know, Bob Marley, for example, in their friends list, and and I love this that now everybody 
has a representation, like every famous person is has a has a profile on, on MySpace. MySpace, and that's not just a joke. It's a way. Like I'm sure there's tons of Karl Marxes on My, MySpace, and it's this very particular thing. Like when you put, you know, my friend Sandy and my cousin Jim and Karl Marx are my top friends. You really are sending a signal like that, and I think you're doing that in general. And musicians definitely, definitely do that, and they, they will definitely put. You know, their musical idols and heroes in their friends. And I think that's a way to say, you know, hey, this is who I identify with. This, If you want to associate me with music. So going back to the visualization, would you be able to to say, okay, give me a visualization of all the people who are friends with Karl Marx and Bob Marley? Um, I really, really would love something like that to exist. <laughs> it does not for MySpace. That's where you sort of push up against the limits of, of MySpace. Mm. Um which is sad to me from a musical perspective because MySpace is still where the action is for music. Mm -hmm. um, another simple thing that I would love is just like better maps. Uh, so you could say, oh, I'm really into the scene. I'm really into the dubstep scene. Mm -hmm. um, show me everybody that's in the dubstep scene. You mm -hmm. can't do that with MySpace, even though... Well, isn't there location information? But, there, just, but it's not... There is, but, sensitive. there is, but no one's made it so that you can draw that out really uh, easily. You can make widgets that show you where people have come to your site from, and that's based on your IP address. Uh -huh. But I, I would love, I would love to be able to more visually, geographically right. articulate and IP a address scene. doesn't tell you necessarily where you are at that particular moment in time, or does it? If you're on tour, well, it. Well, that's true too. That's a whole other thing. Like, if it's like this weekend, I love Dub. What's going on that's near me? Right, and and that's actually a, a cool area of exploration. And some people have gotten into that. And there are sites like Reverb Nation, and even iTunes now has a plugin that will scan your playlist and tell you if anybody's coming to the area around you. Huh. I think that's based probably on them scanning a bunch of known sites probably like yahoo and going and something like that the bigger ones so you might not you might miss if someone's playing you know at a house party or something that's not didn't show up on one of those sites you might miss it so the this is like a really fertile space for the school of information and and kind of what i do is like how do you capture all the information that someone wants about a scene be it all the other people in the scene, all the other producers, all the other fans, hmm. where the shows are. And it gets it gets really tricky. And mm -hmm. it, it's also really fun. Like, it's fun to think about these things. Yeah. For me, the search for music is really, really core to what I do. Uh, I don't think that everyone is like that at all. I, I don't think people are always searching for new music. I don't think people are voracious about it. So I, I don't think that the rush towards giving people you know, new music or new information about music is always justified. That, in some ways, is what's really good about a service like Pandora mm -hmm. or Last, which is that they they may they might not be trying to present you new information or new or new music. They just want to give you something else. So it also depends on your dedication as a music hunter, right? If you're sure. if you think you're gonna like what your friends like, then last might work for you. Whereas if you know what you like and you kind of want something similar, then maybe Pandora. But obviously, if you have a more voracious appetite, you can look for it yourself. Yeah, or read a blog. I think, I think that's a good blog. characterization. Um, I'm curious about how the musical value chain is changing. So I'm going to give a little bit of background on that question. Two weeks ago, I interviewed Eric Halstein of 
the Energy and Resources Group, and um, we were talking about global value chains. And a value chain, I don't know if you use this term in uh, talking about music, but essentially all the links in the process of producing uh, music as a commodity all the way from you know, manufacturing through marketing and distribution. So thinking about music in this way, I was wondering if you could talk about how the distribution of power, um, you know, the, the distribution of power across the value chain between musicians and labels and fans, how that has been changing. I certainly can. Uh, that's, and it's a, it's a good question and it's, and it is an especially good question to sort of phrase like that, where what does the flow of value look like? And I'll go back to what I was saying before, which is the MP3. The, the MP3 has completely made it possible to, uh, for a producer to record their music, put it online, and get it directly to their fans without any intervening um, company in there. Now, that can be difficult for a musician if all they're doing is giving away their music for free and they, they never get paid. I don't think that's a business model that works for everyone. I actually do recommend that as a business model for people who are starting out, but um, I definitely know people who want to make a living off of their music. Mm -hmm. um, and so maybe there is a way to pay them uh, for their music, and and I'm and I'm really interested in sort of tools that allow musicians to do this for themselves. Yes, it's very easy for anybody who makes original music to get their get their creations into an iTunes store or an eMusic type store uh, or any of these electronic uh, these online um, facilities for selling music and that, and that's great and 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 you know iTunes definitely has done a really good job in in terms of its design and its access and making it easy for consumers to buy music in a traditional model but I really don't think there's been enough exploration around um, standalone applications that a musician could take and put on their website and sell music directly to you. There, there's been some. There's um, uh, something called One Two Three Music, I think, and there's something called Zencart. And just now, in the last six months, there's a few more applications for people to do direct music selling. But it's still a fertile space, and and I think that has something to do with the fact that the music industry has been so centralized for so long. Even in the 70s and 80s when we had a lot more labels, there was still this need to have uh, everyone from A&R people to uh, promotions folks to CEOs because you had to physically make a product mm -hmm. that had to get distributed, had to get out to the stores. We don't have that now. And I think the music industry is still, when you talk about you know the value chain, uh, I think we're still sort of struggling with how to how to deal with that. Um, okay. So it, the value chain has been dis disrupted. There's no question about that. Um, where what that's going to look like or how it's going to settle down is is an open question and an interesting question. Yeah. So the disruption, the, as you put it, um, 
is kind of allowing for all these new slash experimental business models, right? Like Radiohead's uh, in rainbows. But um, I know that you look at voluntary collective licensing schemes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so can you, can you first tell us what, what those are? Sure. I, I, can, I can do my VCL pitch. All right. Um, there is this sense that the music industry is um, losing ground to file sharing, to illegal file sharing, and that um, people are, no matter how many folks, the RIAA, which is the um, the sort of political action committee arm of the of the major record labels, among other things, um, is really kind of aggressively going after file sharers and saying, what you're doing is illegal, we want to sue you, and either you have to come to court, which is, you know, a ridiculously time-consuming experience, or you can settle up for $3,000 to have us not sue you. That is not a sustainable business model if you think that, that... there's been 20,000, around 20,000 lawsuits in the last four years, but by one study, uh, 60 million Americans in a single year downloaded a track using a file sharing service. Uh, what people have suggested is let's institute a licensing scheme. Licensing just be the same way that um, ASCAP works, the songwriters uh, union. I can't stop you from performing my song as a songwriter. You have to pay a an intermediary corporation a certain amount of money, but uh, I can't be stop. I as one performer can't be stopped from playing another performer's composition, um, like if I'm going to cover it, say. So people have said, well, let's let's look at that system, which is really good for keeping track of large bodies of information. Lic- licensing schemes are, are a great way for someone who doesn't want to keep track of all the different uses of of their creation. So say every time somebody downloads a track, it's it's cool if they just license it to uh, a third party to keep track of that stuff. So mm-hmm. people people have said, let's do this for music. Let's do this for file sharing. Let's turn file sharing from something that is illegal and unprofitable and, and quote, stealing from the artist to something where a user pays a certain amount of money into a system a month. Let's say it's like $8 a month. And in return, they get to download all the music that they want in any way that they want and keep it. And they'll know that a portion of their $8 a month gets back to the artist Mm -hmm. because we have that ability to track the movement of files over the network. Generally, I really like this idea of let's stop suing fans, let's change the business model to something that revolves around what people are doing anyway, file sharing, and and let's license that. Let's say, that's okay, we're going to collect some money from you, not an unreasonable amount, and then we're going to give that money back to the artist. So what would need to happen for this system to be introduced? Well, one thing is that you would have to deal with this question of uh, tracking. What? How do you do it accurately? Do you do you embed something in the files that say, okay, I've, I've been downloaded to Stephanie's computer, you know, put a check mark in this artist's box, and at the end of the month, they'll get a penny from Stephanie. Um, doing that is really 
tricky because people can change the files or they can, you know, or, or they might be wigged out by the fact that there's something embedded in their music. Um, then you could take a different approach and just sort of scan the the files as they move across the network. That's actually possible now. Mm. Um, it's the way uh, that some of these networks are policed and in a slightly different form, it's the way that YouTube tracks for copyrighted material. Mm. Um, so they don't even because it's tagged differently. There's something in the code. No, it's 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 cooler than that in a way. It's a technology. They actually look at the waveform. They actually wow. watch the file as it moves through the network. There's no tagging in it at all. It's like they say, oh, this 10 seconds really matches. We're you know 99 percent sure that this is a Steely Dan song, wow. um, and it shouldn't be on YouTube. And so we're gonna take it down. So yeah. so there's a lot of there's a lot of work to be done around that. Like how do you how do you do it right? Like, how do you institute a system that's accurate, you know, 99% of the time or 99.9% of the time? Mm-hmm. There's questions about how do you collect the money? How much money would people be willing to pay? How do you institute it, especially if you're going to do it in a limited way, either as a test or just have it be a voluntary system? So, you know, if you get 10 million people using the system and it works great, but What's to prevent them from just leaking it to the other, you know, 290 million people in this country, like them just taking all the free stuff? You know, if you kind of do away with with making file sharing illegal, then that raises some questions about like, well, how does how does the system work? So it's definitely it's definitely not a, a fully fleshed out um, system, but I'm really happy that people are at least talking about let's go the licensing route or let's consider these alternative business models to the way that that um, the music industry has worked for 80 years because the technology is different now and mm-hmm. we have we have the ability to do some tracking and we have you know definitely the ability to distribute mp3s we've proved that for 10 years so let's take advantage of this great so we'll be right back on next week's show, I'll be talking to uh, Evelyn Ficara, a PhD student in the music department, about her work as a collaborative composer. So please join me for The Graduates every Monday from 12 to 12.30 on Calix. And if you have general feedback, ideas for graduate students to interview, or if you'd like to be interviewed yourself, don't be shy. Send an email to thegraduatescalix at AOL. Dot com. That's the graduates K A L X at AOL.com. Welcome back. Today I'm talking to Matt Earp, a master's student at the School of Information, about his work on online networks of musicians and fans and the effect of technology on the social listening experience. Where did Kid Chameleon come from? I kind of embraced this moniker of Kid Chameleon about 10 years ago. I was, I still remember I was sitting on a speaker in Twilo, which is a defunct club in New York in 1998. And it just came to me and I was like, I like it. And at the time, you know, it's a video game. It's a, it's a game for Sega from the, from the early 90s that people still have an affinity for but I also liked the metaphor of the chameleon you know being able to change and and not only change but sort of blend in with where they were so I I, I sort of took that as a as a 
a sign of something that and that I should keep it and that I should live by it. And so I've been able to construct an identity around that and let people take from that name, Kate Chameleon, what they will, and also to take to take from my music what they will. And and I'm I actually always tell people I'm not comfortable talking about what I do. I'd rather just play them a record. So mm, well then do you want to play us a record? Um sure. I'll play the newest track on a label called Hyperdub, which is run by an artist named Code Nine out of London. And this is um, called Spliff Dub Remix. great talking to you matt thanks for having me on the show stephanie and if you'd like to keep up with matt aka kid chameleon you can hear him spin the fourth saturday of every month at club six at a party called surya dub uh, or you can visit his blog at kidchameleon.com. that's k-i-d-k-a-m-e-l-e-o-n dot com you've been listening to the graduates here on KALX Berkeley and join me next Monday from 12 to 12.30.